Hey y'all, today we're going to address monkeypox by looking at AIDS. Because I've been seeing and hearing a lot of places, people comparing the way that America is responding to monkeypox to AIDS responses. And like a lot of the history we talk about on this show, when you center black people in the story, the story changes. Black people experienced the AIDS crisis differently, and when they couldn't find help for a problem that affected their communities more, they organized and advocated for themselves, both in America and worldwide. So the book we're talking about today is called To Make the Wounded Whole, African American Responses to HIV and AIDS. And I'm talking to Professor Daniel Royals of Florida International University. And I want to start the conversation just by establishing that black people's experience during the AIDS crisis, one of the things that shaped it pretty early was that AIDS was perceived as a gay disease and being gay was perceived as being white. So let's start with just why there was that pre-existing association between gayness and whiteness during the AIDS crisis. Yeah, so that's a really good question. And you're right in that initially AIDS was perceived not just as a gay disease, but as a white gay disease. And I think it's important to recognize that while the framing of a white gay disease was kind of more specific to communities of color, that for a lot of people, including white gay men, there's a kind of unspoken association between whiteness and gayness because mainstream gay culture has been, and in a lot of ways remains, kind of normatively white. So, you know, and in the early days of the epidemic, the people who were kind of out front in advocating for people with AIDS or being kind of the face of people with AIDS in the media were mainly white gay men. And so that kind of reinforced this link for a lot of people, including African-Americans, including Black gay men, that this is not just a gay disease, but specifically a white gay disease. And I think we can look at different reasons for that or different dimensions of that. One is that a lot of Black gay men had experienced terrible discrimination in gay neighborhoods, in gay enclaves like Greenwich Village in New York City or the Castro in San Francisco and West Hollywood in L.A., kind of places where gay men, meaning mainly white gay men, would gather to, you know, drink and dance, you know, go to bars, go to bookstores, all those kinds of things, um, you know, to some degree also lived. Black gay men and other gay men of color, but I think especially black gay men, experienced a lot of racism. They would go to bars and be asked to present multiple forms of ID. Well, white gay men were not asked to do the same thing. They reported that when they would talk to a white gay man in the bar, um, you know, they would kind of treat them with suspicion or, you know, not want to bring them home or not want to go home with them because, you know, they were afraid of the neighborhoods that they lived in. You know, so all these kind of like big and small ways that Black gay men were made to feel marginalized within the spaces of gay community. So that's one. And then another thing that I think is important to realize is that, you know, this happens in the context of a much longer history of Black people being pathologized, you know, being treated as sick or dirty. You know, these are like kind of framings of Blackness that are hundreds of years old. Obviously, you know, they go back through the transatlantic slave trade, you know, to like early encounters between Europeans and Africans. So a lot of 
Black folks like are very aware, <laughs> right, of this history when AIDS first becomes recognized, and they're thinking about the epidemic. And I heard this from a number of people that I interviewed, kind of unprompted, from you know both gay and straight, that they had the thought when AIDS was first recognized. Finally, it's something that's not about us. So there is the sense early on of kind of I, I write in the book like a script being flipped right? It's like, this is a disease of white people, not black people, finally. And so that fed into the sense of AIDS is a white gay disease. And when we started to see pretty early on numbers suggesting otherwise, not just that it wasn't a, specifically a white gay disease, but that, you know, a disproportionate number of black men were being affected. You know, some people really kind of took offense at that and saw it as you know, uh, as kind of like the return of, of that racist script of pathological blackness. So many reasons why the disease was was initially understood as being a white gay disease, but all of those have had redounding effects through to the present. So it was both that the image of being gay was white in America and black people were like, oh, cool. It's a disease that's not like, thank you for not including us in this. That's great. And kind of ignored it. So then one of the first things that had to be tackled in Black AIDS activism was racism, because activists trying to spread awareness and like protect people were generally going to these white gay spaces that Black men weren't allowed in. Yeah, so a lot of the kind of first line of response to AIDS came from, quote unquote, the gay community, which was in an unspoken way, the white gay community. And so a lot of the first organizations that were started to respond to AIDS were groups like Gay Men's Health Crisis in New York, San Francisco AIDS Foundation, AIDS Project Los Angeles. In the book, I write quite a bit about a group called Philadelphia Community Health Alternatives and the Philadelphia AIDS Task Force. Those both came up out of Philadelphia's gayborhood. It's called the gayborhood in Philadelphia. <laughs> it's not a very creative name. You know, those organizations came out of those spaces. And again, those were spaces that Black gay men had experienced as just being profoundly racist and alienating. So to the degree that those organizations were associated with a discriminatory community for Black gay men, that was a problem. And it was also a problem because very often those organizations and the people in those organizations didn't really realize how their community and how their organizations kind of looked to Black gay men. They thought of like, okay, we're going to do AIDS prevention for gay men, and that's going to reach all men who have sex with men. And that wasn't the case, because to some degree, those, those white gay men didn't realize how kind of exclusive and segregated their community was. And so when... Black AIDS activists started to say, you know, well, you need to do targeted prevention or targeted education for not just Black gay men, but Black communities in general. There was a lot of pushback from some people in those predominantly white gay organizations who were also, you know, seeing all their friends die. They were always strapped for cash. I mean, you know, this is really a situation where you have two groups of people who are 
marginalized and disempowered to very different degrees and in different ways. You know, I'm not saying that they were like kind of (laughs) equivalently marginalized. They weren't. But, you know, this is all in the context of there's no funding. You know, there's so little public awareness. There's so little public concern for AIDS and for people with AIDS. But at the same time, I mean, you really see some of what Kathy Cohen, who's a political scientist who's written about AIDS in Black America, might call you know, secondary forms of marginalization, where marginalized people marginalize each other for a variety of reasons. You know, but we really see that, especially in the early days of AIDS, where activists of color will go to these predominantly white gay organizations and say, you need to do something about AIDS prevention for communities of color. And their response is kind of like, well, why? You know, we're already doing this. Isn't that enough? And we don't have enough to do more. So why are you asking us to do this thing that's going to take away from what we're already doing. And that led to a lot of conflict, a lot of certainly hurt feelings, but also to a lot of people probably getting HIV and getting sick and dying who didn't have to. Let's definitely get into some of the specific work that these organizations were doing, because you talk about a little bit in the book that like, even when sometimes these activists went and tried to say, hey, you should reach out to non-white people, your outreach is very limited. Sometimes they would try and it didn't go well. A lot of these organizations first came up because Black people weren't being addressed, but they were dying too. So it was all about bringing that message to the people who weren't getting it. So let's see, some of the ways that Black organizations tried to deliver that message. So in the book, I, I talk about kind of different ways that different groups tried to think about the issue of who you're going to reach out to. So there's this kind of tension for some Black AIDS organizations between like, are we going to treat this as a Black disease or are we going to treat this as a gay disease? And depending on how you answer that question, you arrive at different ways of dealing with it. So, you know, if your focus is going to be on the Black community, then you're going to focus on a range of folks, including women in public housing, including sex workers, including young people. So some groups do go and like really target those groups of people. They'll send AIDS educators into block parties in public housing or, you know, to reach out to sex workers like on the corner. You know, they'll work with school programs and after school programs to try to reach kind of school age youth. And others take a, an approach that's more focused around non-white gay identity. So there's a group that I read about in San Francisco, the National Task Force on AIDS Prevention, that really targets Black gay men within the larger framing of we're going to do AIDS prevention for gay men of color. And so, you know, this is San Francisco, mul- very multicultural city, where there are organizations for Hispanic gay men, Asian American gay men, Native American gay men. And so this group, the National Task Force, which does work nationally, but also works a lot locally, it's kind of a a confusing name. They try to coordinate some of these efforts among gay men of color organizations for AIDS education and AIDS prevention. And they start something called the Gay Men of Color Consortium to coordinate those efforts because their thinking is, we have this city that has a really diverse population. We, again, have a kind of limited bucket of resources that's coming from the city and coming from the state. 
This is kind of before there's really any like significant federal funding to speak of. And rather than compete with each other for money, let's collaborate and learn from each other and learn from each other's approaches. Because, you know, even though people in these different communities have very different cultures in some ways, they have a kind of similar, not the same, but similar structural relationship to power, which is whiteness. So if you home in on gay communities, then I think that really becomes apparent where it's like, you know, the reins of power are held by mainly white gay men. So, you know, we have communities of gay men of color, let's all work together and we can think through what our relationship to that power structure is and how we can challenge it and how we can bring some resources into our communities. So that's another kind of approach. A third approach is to say, there is no need to choose between we're going to focus on Black people or gay men, we're going to focus on Black gay men, and we're going to think about what it means to be a Black gay man. The example that I use of that is a group called Gay Men of African Descent in New York City. And they are really working in the vein of artists and writers like Marlon Riggs and Joseph Beam and Essex Hemphill, all of these men who are part of what some people have called the Black gay renaissance. So, you know, kind of playing on the Harlem Renaissance of the 1920s in the 80s and early 90s, there was this just like flowering of Black gay culture that didn't come from nowhere. It was in a lot of really important ways in conversation with women of color feminism and with black feminism. And I mean, like responding to their ideas, but like also sometimes these people are literally in conversation, like real, I don't know, embodied relationship. So this is all kind of happening around the same time. And the men in that movement are really responding to and picking up the ideas of black feminism and kind of applying it to their own experience. Like this is before we have the term intersectionality and certainly before the term intersectionality becomes like very popularized in the way that it has been. But it's they're talking essentially about that in the same way that when Kimberly Crenshaw like talked about intersectionality, it's like there is this way that we think legally about, you know, what it means to be a woman and a way that we think legally about what it means to be black. However, the law like finds no space for thinking about what it means to be both of those things at the same time. Black gay men are like, we have this predominantly white gay culture or normatively white gay culture that does not account for our blackness. And we have a mainstream black culture that is predominantly or normatively straight that doesn't account for our gayness. And I want to like, just kind of point out that for those listening who may not have some of the like specific context for this, that, you know, this is really in the 1980s, an era of a really like aggressively straight Afrocentrism. You know, this is like Malafi Asante and a number of Afrocentric thinkers who are saying in very explicit terms, there was no homosexuality in Africa before European contact. Gayness is a white thing. It is not a black thing. Gayness is destructive to blackness. Saying all these things in very explicit terms. You know, at the same time that, you know, Eddie Murphy is like joking about gay bashing (laughs) and there's a part in School Days, the Spike Lee movie, that's like, it's about Black Greek life, but it's like, you know, his character's like saying super homophobic stuff. So, you know, there's all these, all these ways that the Black culture that they're, that they're also responding to is aggressively, normatively straight. 
And so in the same way that Kimberly Crenshaw is like, okay, like the space does not account for Black womanhood, men from groups like Game of African Descent, GMAD, say these spaces don't account for Black gayness. And so their project then becomes to articulate what a holistic Black gay identity looks like. Like not just something that is the sum of if you put like our Blackness together with our gayness, but like these things together are something different and unique and special that they work to highlight and to nurture. And so I think their work is some of the most interesting work in that it's probably not apparent to a lot of people at first glance, like why some of the stuff they do relates to AIDS. Because, you know, a lot of their work is cultural. It's, you know, having discussion groups and information nights, public lectures, you know, let's talk about gay people in Egypt. And let's talk about the, you know, gay tradition in Yoruba culture. Let's talk about gay men and women in the Harlem Renaissance. Uh, They do a lot of kind of interesting work that's like basically establishing like that Black gay history exists. And, you know, I think what they're doing there is saying like, we have existed throughout history in these different ways contrary to what some of these Afrocentric scholars are saying, which is like, there was none of this ever before. I mean, you're saying, no, there was. And that's a way of saying like, you know, we belonged there and we belong here. And for them, the connection to AIDS is, you know, they see these two ways in which Black gay men are marginalized in gay culture and in Black culture. And for them, creating this space, a literal space, but also a figurative space, the space for Black identity is meant to be affirming because they don't take it for granted, as many AIDS organizations do, did and do, that the people that they are trying to reach see their own lives as worth saving. And for them, that affirming is like a necessary step toward making sure that Black gay men see their own lives as worth saving and therefore want to take steps to save their own lives or to protect their own lives by using condoms, by not sharing needles, you know, by doing kind of all of the HIV prevention 101 things that so many groups are focused on. You know, so it's that thread through a politics of Black gay men's self-esteem that you get from, let's talk about Black gay history to preventing HIV among Black gay men. So this is just like some of the ways that groups in different ways try to work through these naughty issues of like both homophobia and racism as they're running into it, both in the world of HIV prevention or aid service response, and then more broadly in in the larger world. Yeah, GMAD was one of the most interesting ones in the book. Just that at like the time when it was like a lot of Black pride, a lot of like Black is beautiful. At the same time, Black gay men felt invisible. So that was like a movement to say that like being Black and gay is also beautiful. Like this is a culture that exists. And that through line of feeling validated before you can even start talking about like, how do you protect yourself from this like disease that just kind of popped up out of nowhere? Because you even talk about in the book that there's like another one of the organizations, the National Task Force on AIDS Prevention, did a survey that was about AIDS, just to see like if people what people knew about it and like where they should focus their outreach. And it turned out that a lot of Black men 
knew about AIDS, but they weren't doing anything about it. Yeah. And and at the time that they did that, there had been no kind of similar study about Black gay and bisexual men knew about AIDS. How were they like using that knowledge about AIDS? And I think they did that survey in like 88 or 89. And we're talking about seven or eight years into the epidemic. I mean, looking from where we are now, this is like early days, but eight years ago was 2014, <laughs> right? Like, you know, it's been around for a while. And I think the fact that there had not been a kind of attitudinal or behavioral survey that focused on blocking men, you know, really kind of speaks to how people thought about the epidemic. Going back into the real early years of the epidemic, like it's hard to find even data about, you know, who was being affected because they weren't necessarily collecting data about race. I think the earliest that I've seen specific data about AIDS in Black communities is like 1983, which is still two years in, you know, but it becomes pretty clear by 83, certainly by 85, that there is like a very disproportionate impact. And so, you know, that's a good reason to do some studies and figure out not just why, but what people are doing, because that's an important part of the picture, but that didn't necessarily connect for everybody. So you had to have a group like the National Task Force propose specifically to the Centers for Disease Control that they were going to do this study and get funding for that study in order to be able to do it, because nobody else was doing it. Their history is kind of interesting because they were formed out of an interracial group of gay men that was like formed as kind of a meeting space, a social space for black and white gay men who were interested in dating each other. But, you know, there were always people in the organization who were interested in political work. Some people were really just interested in the social aspect, but some people were like, let's go picket the gay bars that are discriminatory. And they did. You know, let's go protest the South African rugby team. And they did. You know, and those are some of the folks who ended up starting the National Task Force, led for the first six or seven years by Reggie Williams, who's just like a really fierce black gay man from Cleveland, moved out to California and, you know, helped start this organization. Talk about the National Task Force on AIDS Prevention. That organization was about non-white gay men and like multicultural organizing and this way of connecting the struggles of different marginalized people extended internationally. Some of these organizations didn't even just stay looking at like black people in America. They reached out to Africa. Yeah. So a number of the organizations that I write about kind of also engaged the epidemic in Africa in really different ways. You know, one of these is the Nation of Islam not a group that I necessarily expected to write about in this context, you know, but they became kind of advocates for what was essentially like an Afrocentric AIDS treatment out of Kenya called Kemron that never really worked, but, you know, they were really intense advocates for, tried successfully to get a clinical trial of it going in the United States. It never really got off the ground, but there's a really interesting story of how they took something like AIDS, which is associated with very strongly with the gay men, which is not a group that the Nation of Islam is super friendly toward, you know, but how they kind of took a narrative of not just AIDS, but this, you know, supposed treatment from Kenya and work that into 
you know, how the nation of Islam talks about the world and, and where black people fit into the world. Well, the nation of Islam kind of surprisingly shows up to promote a solution from Africa, while a lot of the world is pointing to Africa as the cause and the source of the problem of AIDS. The black church really isn't showing up for this issue, despite the fact that it's generally been, been at the center of a lot of social justice movements, especially in the black community. People were looking around and seeing that the black church wasn't very vocal on the issue of AIDS, which is where the organization The Balm and Gilead comes in. I do want to say, like, I think the black church gets a lot of focus in this discussion as being like the locus of the problem, right? You know, but like, there's a lot of homophobia outside of the black church. There's a lot of homophobia outside of black communities, like, right? There's like a lot of homophobia in society, you know? So it's it shouldn't be surprising when we see that reproduced in communities of color and in institutions like the black church. Although like it did take kind of particular forms within those spaces. And as you said, like the black church has a, a kind of singular significance in the history of black organizing, right? So, you know, the work of the bombing Gilead was to make that connection for some people who were resistant to making that connection, right? And to do it in a way that made sense for them, that spoke their language. So, you know, to put that in a scriptural language, to put that in a biblical language, you know, and they did that in really, I think, interesting ways. Maybe one of like my favorite like single sources that I wrote about in the whole book is this publication from the Bauman Gilead that is just like a collection of like prayers and liturgies about AIDS that like really makes these connections between like the Bible and, you know, what's going on. So it's like, you know, a prayer for the healing of AIDS, the church is alive and living with AIDS. There's a version of this that's available online as a PDF. The one that I used more is, I was only able, able ever to find one copy of it. It was in the New York Public Library, but it includes all of these discussions by the prayer group that put it together. So, you know, in, in biblical scholarship, this is called like exegesis. I'm not even sure if I'm saying that right because I'm not a biblical scholar, you know, but it's all the kind of like, you know, how we got to where we got to in terms of like these interpretations of the Bible. And they're really revealing in terms of like how these folks in like 1994, 1995 were thinking through and talking through these questions of how do you connect our spiritual tradition to these very pressing material embodied needs of our community. And some of the stuff they come up with, I think, is really interesting and rich and had to be challenging for the congregations. Um, you know, the message, Jesus is alive and living with AIDS, the church is alive and living with AIDS. I have to think that that message hit pretty hard in the mid-90s. You know, I, I have to think that would hit hard probably today, but, you know, certainly then. So the interesting thing for me about the Bauman Gilead was that, you know, they took this work that they started doing in Harlem in 1989 and you know within a decade had kind of parlayed that into doing work in different parts of the diaspora so doing work in the u.s south doing work in the caribbean and then doing work in africa and they were able to get some federal funding to do that and i think this is interesting because this is where you see very different interests align because 
the federal government's interest in AIDS in Africa in the late 90s and early 2000s is really one that centers on issues of national security, international security. I mean, AIDS is really explicitly framed in the framing of the State Department as, you know, this is a security threat. This is something that can destabilize, you know, regions that we already see as being kind of unstable. So their thinking around that is, I'm sure for for some and to some degree humanitarian, you know, but it's also, you know, states thinking like states, uh, you know, this is also like majorly a security issue. At the same time, or, you know, kind of a few years down the line, once Bush 2 comes into office, you know, Bush 2 came into office with a lot of emphasis on faith-based programs and religiosity. And so there's a real strong alignment of interests there as the Bush administration is thinking about how to address AIDS in Africa, which is very possibly like the only good thing that came out of the Bush 2 administration was the response to AIDS in Africa. You know, but they were really kind of attracted to working with a group like the Bombing Gilead that could give them a kind of legitimacy in addressing this problem through the kind of lens or through the kind of framework that that they were interested in doing that through, which is religion. And, you know, there are a lot of kind of controversial aspects of the Bush response to AIDS in Africa, you know, the emphasis on abstinence and no sex before marriage and monogamy um, and really a secondary emphasis on condoms. But nevertheless, you know, at the end of the day, got a lot of resources into Africa for HIV treatment and prevention that were not there before. And the way that they got there is in part a story of another group that I write about, um, a group called Act Up Philadelphia. Maybe one of my favorite stories in the book. Well, I shouldn't say that because I love them all. But I think the Act Up Philadelphia story is really, really interesting because it's so different from almost any other kind of Act Up story that is out there. For most people, if they have heard of Act Up, I am willing to bet good money that if they think of ACT UP, they think of ACT UP New York. And they think of ACT UP New York between the years 1987 and 1993, let's say. And ACT UP Philadelphia is just such a different story. Whereas ACT UP New York in its heyday was mainly, again, predominantly white and gay, although certainly not everybody was. It was a big organization, a pretty diverse organization, had lots of different people. But at the end of the day, mainly white, mainly gay men. Whereas you know, Act Up Philly around the same time was also that. But then in the mid-90s, as Act Up New York is kind of declining, as other chapters are, because there were like 100 chapters of Act Up around the world at one point, like as other chapters are going under, some folks in Act Up Philadelphia who were themselves mainly white and mainly HIV negative, but who were also, you know, pretty committed leftists were like, okay, we can kind of see where the demographics of the epidemic are continuing to shift because they had always, there were, there were always like, there was always a disproportionate impact on Black communities, but, you know, that became more pronounced as the epidemic went on. And so these folks in Active Philadelphia were like, that's where we should really be putting our efforts and that's where we should really be organizing. And so they started to organize in you know, Philly's bot community where lots of people were getting HIV and were becoming sick and were dying. They started to organize there. And, you know, within a few years, Act Up Philadelphia was a majority minority organization. 
and became really involved in fights for access to healthcare for people of African descent in Philadelphia around Medicaid privatization, but then also in the global South and especially in South Africa, because at the time, the Clinton administration was blocking South Africa from importing or manufacturing generic versions of very effective HIV medications. And this is when, I mean, the, the epidemic in South Africa was at the level of like global emergency. And so ACT at Philadelphia in concert with, with some other groups became really active in this movement to get medicine into South Africa. And I'm kind of alighting a lot of the story here, but they spent years putting really direct pressure on federal officials to do something about AIDS in Africa. And in 2003, Bush announced PEPFAR, the president's emergency plan for AIDS relief, which has poured billions of dollars in funding into AIDS prevention in Africa and has saved an estimated 20 million lives. But that story very, gets very little told, um, especially as it relates to, to PEPFAR. ACT UP, the AIDS coalition to unleash power, was out mobilizing the poor and marching in the streets. But Black men weren't the only ones affected by AIDS. Black women were also getting AIDS. And even though for a while the CDC didn't acknowledge that, Sister Love, one of the organizations in the book, did ask what do Black women need and sought to serve those needs. And then finally, I I talk about another group, Sister Love, which is a group out of Atlanta, specifically Black women's AIDS, AIDS prevention and kind of in a similar way to Bob and Gilead, like they start locally and go global. One of the interesting things I think about Sister Love is that today their work is explicitly intersectional. They describe themselves as an intersectional AIDS organization. They haven't always, but I think, you know, very key elements of that thinking have always been part of the work that they do. I think this comes through really clearly in how they thought about moving into Africa and how they thought about working in Africa as an organization that they refer to as like being from the South within the North. They are from an under-resourced community within an area with a lot of resources, but nevertheless from the global North going into the global South to do work. And so, you know, really tried to be intentional about doing that work in a way that didn't just kind of reproduce the power relations of we're a global North organization going into the global South, really tried to kind of engage people on the ground on more or less an even playing field that wouldn't just kind of reproduce that inequality. And so tried to think about themselves in an intersectional way, you know, not just being Black women trying to speak to other Black women, but understanding that, you know, their region of origin you know, and their relative wealth introduced like another <laughs> intersectional aspect to the relationship that needed to be dealt with. So, you know, but altogether, you know, we see lots of different ways that different organizations thought about what is this relationship between AIDS in Black America and AIDS throughout the African diaspora? And what does that mean for our identity as, you know, people of African descent in the United States? What does that mean for our identity in these different ways as we think about our relationship to people both in Africa and throughout the diaspora as we're all engaged in this work around AIDS? It gets into these bigger ideas of like 
systemic racism and poverty and how these inform the way that AIDS affected just like all Black people worldwide. Super interesting. We are out of time. Can we take two seconds to just pull the through line to today? Sure, sure, sure. So, you know, one of the things that I've seen that has been really striking to me in the conversation around monkeypox is, as many people have said, there are strong echoes of the early days of AIDS. But I see that in a different way than I think a lot of people are saying it. Because what has been striking to me over the last couple of months is that the vaccine response has been vastly unequal. While we know from data coming out of New York in North Carolina, just to say like two of the sets of data that I've seen, I'm sure there are more, the gay men of color and, you know, especially black gay men and Latino gay men are vastly overrepresented among people getting monkeypox, but underrepresented among people getting the vaccine. I know that some places are taking steps to address that disparity, but the disparity exists. And we should have expected the disparity to exist. Like if we were going to learn from the history of HIV and AIDS, or really, I mean, you could take your pick of epidemics or public health crises in the United States. They almost always hit communities of color harder than others. So, you know, we should have expected this from the beginning, but we didn't. We should have planned for it, but we didn't. And we should have been intentional about designing outreach, education, prevention programs in order to mitigate those disparities, but we didn't. Maybe if there's something encouraging to pull out of this, it's that people are putting pressure on authorities to do better, and those authorities seem to want to do better, and that is notable because that has not always been the case, but seem to want to do better and seem to be responding not as quickly as we would like, but more quickly than they have in the past. And so the hope is always that at some point we will learn <laughs> learn the lessons of our history. That continues to be my hope. As, as monkeypox continues to unfold, I hope that we will learn from what we have seen with HIV and continue to think about how all of these epidemics don't hit everybody equally. They don't affect everybody equally. And we'll think about ways that we can mitigate those disparities because it's a matter of, of, of people's pain and it's a matter of people's lives. Thank you so much for coming on my show. You're welcome. It was a pleasure. I know, y'all. No one wants to have a new disease to discuss and be worried about. But please take care of yourselves and keep sharing this show. All power.